Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum about his book, Our African Unconscious, which explores the archetypal roots of our collective psyche that can be traced to the evolution and emergence of Homo sapiens sapiens in Africa. Dr. Bynum discusses this, the teachings of Osiris, which can still be found manifest in the three great Abrahamic traditions, the evolutionary origin of the hero's journey monomyth, Kundalini, and how remembering our African past can help heal our present and future. Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum is a clinical psychologist and former director of the behavioral medicine program at the University of Massachusetts Health Services. He is the 2005 recipient of the Abraham H. Maslow Award from the American Psychological Association and the author of several books, including Dark Light Consciousness and the recently republished Our African Unconscious, The Black Origins of Mysticism and Psychology, which is the topic of this episode's conversation. Dr. Bynum is currently in private practice in Hadley, Massachusetts. Dr. Bynum, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Hey, man, I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. I hope we go all over the place. I think we will go all over the place. (laughs) Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this. And I am very grateful and honored for your time and to have this opportunity to speak with you. I think that the argument that you make in uh, your book, Our African Unconscious, is a very uh, uh, vital argument. And I think it's quite strong. And I also think it's necessary. And I'll be completely honest, you know, I tell many of my guests, you know, uh, how much I love their books and everything. But I think that yours is probably one of the most important ones that I've read um, uh, this year, if not the past few years, I think you bring up on a lot of important topics. And so I I really hope that I can do you and your work uh, in this conversation, the justice it deserves. Well, I hope that I'm clear enough and articulate enough to be able to say uh, what I sense, what I understand, and what my intuition is about this, uh, because uh, it is very close to me, as you can imagine, but it's also very close to everybody on the planet, whether we are consciously aware of that or not. Because as you point out, it's something that we all live with tacitly or overtly. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I I thought that maybe the best place to begin would be with the title itself, Our African Unconscious. Um, Can you explain what you mean by this, by Our African Unconscious, and perhaps also say a few words about the model of the unconscious that you are working with? Well, the model of the unconscious that I'm working with is uh, a fairly uh, ancient model and an enlarged model. Most of the models of the unconscious, which essentially for people who may not be aware of that phrase, is the processing of of knowledge and information and intuition and awareness outside of the traditional waking conscious state, the unconscious mind. And most of the unconscious mind that we're familiar with here in the West, in psychology, psychiatry, and literature, and so forth, is the unconscious of Sigmund Freud, and the unconscious of the great pioneer Carl Jung. And both of those are used in classical psychology, psychiatry, so forth. I mean, I I use them too, all the time. But the model of the unconscious that I wanted to bring up is the the deeper, older, more primordial unconscious, the way the unconscious was understood in ancient uh, Kemetic Egypt, Africa, in Egypt. And it did, the unconscious was understood they had a conscious understanding of the unconscious mind in ancient Kemetic Egypt, and they even had names for it. Uh, it was called the uh, primeval waters of Nun and also the uh, Amenta, the, un- the all-Black underworld of images, symbols, forms, and forces that influence our conscious lives spiritually, physically, and otherwise. So they knew about this, and they use it in their medicine and um, in their religious practices. They didn't separate them the way that we do today. That's one thing. The other that I wanted to reintroduce 
because I'm not introducing anything new. I'm simply reintroducing that the unconscious of the ancient Kemetic Egyptians and ours is non-local. What do I mean by that? I mean, we tend to think of the unconscious as in our heads, is inside of our brains in some magical way. And I wanted to point out that the unconscious is not localized inside of our brains, ultimately separate from each other, but rather we share an unconscious. The unconscious is in many senses what's referred to as non-local. It's not in any discrete place, but it is dispersed. And we participate in it as much as it participates in us. And it is much, much, much older than we are as individuals. And Jung, I mean, you, 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 you know about Jung. Jung um, was a explorer of the collective unconscious. But people, people don't, people often forget this. Sigmund Freud himself also explored the collective unconscious. He called it, he referred to it as the racial unconscious. So both Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung talked about the unconscious. What they had difficulty with, however, was recognizing the obvious, the rational implications of this, that it came, came out of Africa, just as we did as a species. Jung said so, although he was very ambivalent about it, back and forth, back and forth, but he acknowledged it. And Freud was very anxious about that. He didn't, he felt that it was, it was a cult, black tide of mud. He had all kinds of pejorative phrases for it because he felt that it would be sliding back to some prior and primitive, by the way, way of understanding the world. And in point of fact, it is not. Our, our technologies today emerge out of that consciousness. And there were permutations of that. And I tried to outline, outline that in the book. That's why it was subtitled, um, The Black Origins of Psychology and Mysticism, because it is both the science of psychology, psychiatry, but it also has its roots in uh, religious, philosophical, and spiritual practices of various kinds under the global umbrella of mysticism. But the two are very closely related to each other, very closely related to each other. And in point of fact, Freud's early career was struggling to get the unconscious out of the mystic origins that it would have been wrapped in, he tried to, as much as he could, and he did a very good job, by the way, of biologizing the unconscious so that they got away from religious and philosophy. But the point, is that it, it is both, it has its foot in both philosophy, religion, mysticism, and also clinical science. And I'm talking, when I say clinical science, I mean uh, psychosomatic medicine, mind-body medicine, hypnosis, and other forms of clinical treatment that we use right now. Yes, uh, thank you for that. You mentioned comedic Egypt. Yes. And I'm not sure that everyone is familiar with that. So I thought um, it would be good to ask you to uh, maybe explain what comedic Egypt is and how is it different than how many traditionally understand Egypt? Well, I use an analogy or a parallel, I should say. When you think of, of, of America, when we think of America, I, you know, we usually think of contemporary America and America beginning in you know, uh, just before the Revolutionary War. And sure, that is part of America. This is the most recent chapter. But there were people here in the, quote, Americas way before Columbus and Europeans. You know, the Native American peoples had uh, cultures that went back for thousands of years. So they were the earlier inhabitants, okay? Well, so we have to have an enlarged view of the history of America. Well, that's an analogy. In ancient Egypt, the most recent, under, the most recent peoples of Egypt are the peoples who came from peoples of, from the uh, Arabian Peninsula and the Middle East, and they came into Egypt, beginning in large numbers around the uh, first millennium BC, 1200, you know, around in there, the Assyrians and the, um, many other peoples. Prior to that, however, 
The peoples who were there primarily were the Kemetic Egyptians, the indigenous African peoples of Egypt. They're the ones who built the pyramids. They're the ones who built the obelisks. They're the ones who built the Sphinx. So we have a, we have a tendency to think that the peoples who are there now are the peoples who built all of that. They didn't. They're the, the most recent on the scene. But the, the pyramid age of Egypt, the great scientists of Egypt, the great philosophies of Egypt, including Osiris and, and many other cults, and also the basis of all three Western religions, all three, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all have their roots philosophically and symbolically and theologically in the ground and the soil and the text, the written text of ancient Kemetic Egypt. So that's why I use the word Kemetic because I want to indicate that this, it goes back for thousands and thousands of years, just not to 1000 BC, but all the way back to the very least a very conservative 3500 BCE when the upper and lower Egypt were united under Mindy's. But actually it was for thousands of years before that. And there are tantalizing physical indications that the civilization of Egypt rose and fell many times, and it may have reached its height in 10,500 BC, 10,500 BC. The Sphinx, the lion-headed man, the lion-headed man looks into the vernal equinox, into the constellation of Leo the lion in 10,500 BC not just 2,500 BC, 10,500 BC. So it's an indication that we as a species, including Egypt, have risen and fallen, risen and fallen many times, many times. And what I try to outline in this book is that we as a species have been around in our present form, Homo sapiens sapiens, our present modern anatomically modern man for at least 150,000, probably 200,000 years. Plenty of time for civilizations to rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. We are the most recent iteration of civilization. But there have been other civilizations that were pretty articulate that vanished. Yeah, <laughs> vanished. I, yeah I, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think that there is a lot of very compelling evidence that supports yes. all of that. And as I was saying to you before we began recording this, you know, my background is in religious studies and yes. my approach is usually the history of religions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I will mention that, yes, we all, you know, emerged out of, you know, mother Africa, that's where we began. But yes. then in the history of religious traditions, we usually start in paleo the paleolithic caves in europe <laughs> you know sure. and uh, when we look at sort of ecstatic or what might be referred to as shamanic activity it's in the mm -hmm. russian steppe lands right um, right and one of the things that i you know and i try to correct a lot of this as much as i can but there's not a lot of scholarship i don't think uh, along these lines but uh, one of the things that I'll point to uh, when looking at these sort of like ancient, what they call the goddess cultures, yes. and they have all yes. these Venus figurines, yes. I always uh, present what's called the Venus of Tantan. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it was discovered in Africa and it yes. dates back to, it's been dated to like 500,000 to 300,000 BCE. Yes. And it's really interesting to see the conversations where it clearly has some of these, uh, 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 it looks like some of the uh, goddess figurines, you know, mm -hmm. these Venus figurines, but yet all these scholars are like, no, that was just, you know, weather. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so there's this like blind spot to the emergence out of Africa. And this is why I think your book is so important because you're like, hey, wait a minute you're glossing over this vital part of human history and origins and religion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said, but maybe let's start with, uh, you mentioned Osiris. Um, yes. 
and uh, Osiris, I think, uh, in terms of sort of the origin of many of the Western religious traditions. So can you speak a little bit to uh, Osiris? You also mentioned the Osirian complex and maybe possibly um, throw in Isis and Horus too. Well, Isis and Horus are actually uh, uh, the archetypal, the uh, primary archetypal figures out of which the story, the Christos, emerges. And uh, that story, that mythology, that template migrated over to the, quote, Middle East and became imbued when the avatar Jesus, the Christ, came along. But it was around a lot longer than that. So these ideas keep circulating in the collective mind, the collective unconscious. Osiris um, was and represented a, for me anyway, a quantum leap in human consciousness, a particularly philosophical and spiritual consciousness, a little bit before the beginning of what we think of as the dynastic age, roughly 3500 BCE, before the common era, before Christ. Um, this figure, of Osiris arose in ancient Egypt. And what he taught was this, that while human beings knew, believed, sensed that there was a, uh, a soul or a spirit in the body that had to be taken care of and honored. And that's why, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, we began, um, you know, burying the dead. That's the beginning of, of awakened human consciousness is when you begin to bury the dead, you are aware that there's something else going on that I don't see. But what Osiris, and that went on for untold millennia. What Osiris taught was that the body had to be really taken care of, buried in a certain, certain kinds of ways because out of it would return the spirit soul of the person. He taught that you, I and others come back as individuals or re recycled through creation. That was a quantum leap in human consciousness. And out of that notion, it came all of our um, perceptions and understandings of reincarnation, um, the evolution of the soul that didn't just continue to exist in some permutation after death, but continue to refine itself and then that is the notion of enlightenment. Hmm. And so after that, we have begun to have figures of the great uh, uh, avatars of human history that advance humankind and advance spiritual consciousness. Scientific consciousness also, but we're talking right here about spiritual consciousness. And Osiris began that, that we know about, in ancient Kemetic Egypt. And after him came a number of others. After him came a number of others. But the idea had now percolated up. It had, come, it had risen up into human consciousness and was now alive and awake. And so by the time that uh, Jesus came along, the model was there of a savior, of, a, of, a, of an avatar who reached through his own development a certain level of consciousness that was enlightened and then brought the light down to other people. And that was, Jesus was clearly an awakened master. And the process also migrated over to India. And so we have in the, the ancient uh, Indian traditions, we have the different avatars at various times who would come to humanity in our dark hours. Okay. So they, they were the great uh, heroes of humankind. They're our highest heroes, you know, as the great avatars, Buddha. Jesus, Christ, Zoroaster, Muhammad, these figures, okay? So uh, this was begun uh, by Osiris in the sense of bringing it to awareness in human consciousness. It was always there. It was always there. I mean, we were, uh, began a sedentary life around 18, 17,000 years ago because we began to not only hunter and gather, but we began to plant things. And mostly in river valleys, the Indus, Tigris, Euphrates, Nile, other places. And we began to notice something. We began to notice that when we ate the plants and we spit out the seeds, that a, during a cycle of sun and moon and weather, those seeds, out of those seeds that we spit out, 
came the same kind of food again. And so the idea of recycling, we, we rebirth began to take form. And it took a, several millennia, obviously, for that to percolate down into it until we finally get our understandings and insights into the spirit and into the soul that gets higher and higher and higher through refinement and education. In ancient Kemetic Egypt, well, the mystery schools taught the seven lively arts. They were about coordinating your intellectual development with your spiritual development until you got higher and higher and higher and more refined. That's what it was. That's where it began. That's where it began. And um, again, the mythology, when I say mythology, I don't mean not real. I mean, the pattern, the template of the Christ is nestled right there. As far as Judaism is concerned, uh, the, seven, the, the, the records show that at least 70 shepherds around um, uh, 1800, come in 1800 BC, come into Egypt gradually, or they come in large numbers, we don't know. But they, they're there for 500 years, mixing in with the indigenous African population there. And they leave roughly four or 500 years later with Moses, the monotheistic religion, not looking like when they first came in. And over the Passover Seder, around many, millions of uh, Passover Seder dinners every year, the phrase is said, in Egypt, did Israel become a nation? It's right there. They say it at the Seder table. But it's not, not a lot of attention is paid to it. Because, as you pointed out, when it comes to certain things, spiritual and religious about Africa, we tend to push it away. We tend to repress it. For me, uh, the, this primordial African consciousness of which all of us participate in is the, quote, threatened return of the repressed, unquote. And, and people don't know what to do with it. It makes us anxious. But we all also intuitively know this. You can't get out of high school, much less college, in the United States or the world without knowing that our species, Homo sapiens sapien, thinking man, emerged out of Africa. All of our anatomical features, all of our cognitive structures and so forth, emerged out of Africa. What I try to emphasize in our African unconscious is that through all our development, through the species before us, those Australopithecines, they're called hominid types. They were very made, a lot of them, for millions of years before we got to Homo sapiens sapiens. They learned how to deal with the cosmos. They learned how to think. They learned how to think. Not merely be here, but to think. And those structures are part of our primordial African unconscious. And that is what was developed there. So that is what this book is primarily about. I mean, there's a lot of history and anthropology and so forth, but that's the central idea that that unconscious is non-local, it is real, and um, it has profound implications for us, not only scientifically and clinically, but also spiritually. Spirituality, I think, organizing the world around certain principles was our first science. I like, I actually had this, highlighted uh, from your book, uh, along what you were just saying, is that the, uh, the emergence of Homo sapiens sapiens out of Africa uh, mm. is sort of the archetype of all human stories. And yes. Yes. Uh, you, you wrote that, um, and here I'm quoting, uh, the rise upward toward light, toward higher consciousness, toward a reunion with the light above it is the root motif in this evolutionary music. And I also wanted to say here too, that I think that your book is beautifully written by the way. And it seems to me that this is also the source of what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is, it is, it is the story that we all repeat in our own particular kind of way, but we all, we all do. And we share the journey prior to birth in our mother's womb, embryologically. And it is guided by a certain dark current in the womb, in the neural tube, that absorbs light and transforms it to higher forms of, of expression in the womb before we even step outside. 
It is there in our consciousness, underneath our waking state consciousness. It appears in our dreams. It even appears in our deep dreamless sleep. It certainly appears in states of mystical understanding. It appears in states of illumination around a new scientific idea. New scientific ideas are not, they don't come by in a rational way. They come by in terms of insights. <laughs> People tend to think that the science advances, uh, the big ideas of science are logical deductions. No, they're not. They're insights. And then people later on uh, find a way to express it logically. Not, they're not illogic, but when they occur, they occur as moments of inspiration, literally inspiration. That was the case with Einstein. That was the case with Freud. They come as insights. So, um, and then uh, when we die, and we know this now, for sure. This is not a speculation. We know this from clinical studies of near-death experiences, that when we die, there is a period of time in which we go through a tunnel-like phenomena and we emerge into a radiant situation on the side of beings, uh, uh, individuals we've known who've passed on, but we emerge to a being of light of some sort. If you're, if you're a Christian, you see Christ. If you're a Buddhist, you see the Ada Buddha. If you're a Hindu, you see Krishna. If you're an indigenous Native American, you see the great spirit. Whatever local coloration we have culturally, that's what we see. But being is light being. And this, uh, and there's some, there's a judgment process that goes on. All of those phenomena, all of those phenomena in meticulous clinical detail are laid out in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Papyrus of Ani also known as the book of coming forth by day and going forth by night or coming forth in light. They lay it out in explicit detail. And this was known at least 5,000 years before Christ. So we've been encountering these kind of spiritual insight phenomena for many, many, many millennia. A, a book that many people may be more familiar with that describes the same thing is the Bardo Throto or the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It describes the same phenomena. So we're gonna experience that. You're gonna experience it. I'm gonna experience it. Everybody looking and listening at this right now is gonna experience this. So this is part of who we are and part of our, our evolution as, 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 as beings, as species. And uh, while it may be somewhat controversial today, uh, I believe in the future, when we get past our era of doubt, that this will be street knowledge. This will be street knowledge. Let's hope so. I um, think so. <laughs> uh, I, I also wanted to ask you, uh, so along these same lines, uh, you bring forth uh, the idea of Kundalini and yes. uh, that this is... Um, indigenous to the African tradition that it's originated in Africa. And it's, uh, there's a clear connection, it seems, between Africa and the indigenous population of India, the Dravidians. Yes. yes. And again, just to point out the blindness that I see in a lot of the studies is that, uh, or even some of the scholars is the Dravidians clearly look African. <laughs> and yet I see, you know, scholars like, well, there's absolutely no connection at all. Um, and right. we even have, you know, the God Krishna, who's an avatar of Vishnu, the word Krishna means black. Yes. You know, and so <laughs> again, mind boggling here, uh, for, you know, that all of this is ignored or explained away. Uh, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about Kundalini and what you mean by it and its role in this greater vision uh, of the religions coming out of uh, the African tradition. All of us as a birthright as human beings have within us coiled at the base of our spine a, a, an energy phenomena that is called uh, various traditions, Kundalini, 
the Uraeus serpent, it has many other names. And what it is, it is a biogenetic uh, energy or force that under certain conditions is awakened. And there are sciences to raise that energy higher and higher and higher in consciousness. And until one reaches a state of illumination, which is rare, but it is eventually the destiny, I believe, of all of us. But certain individuals from time to time have come across that and have mastered it. And there are various traditions of this. Uh, some, some of them in Dravidian India, some in Africa, uh, but this is also the case in, uh, in South America. Why? Because it is a biogenetic thing rooted in us as a species. It is the luminous serpent. And I go into um, perhaps excess detail trying to outline in uh, a book, Our African Unconscious, not only the psychological substrate of that, but also the biological evolutionary substrate of that in terms of uh, biochemistry and other phenomena. But it is there because it is a common inheritance. And for people who think that this doesn't, they don't know anything about it. Uh, if you've ever gone to a, the office of a physician, you know about this. What am I talking about? What is the, sim the medical caduceus? It is a symbol of that that comes from ancient Kemetic Egypt. It is of a pole and then crisscrossed seven times by serpents until the serpents reach the top of the pole where they are no longer serpents, but become birds and take flight. That is a symbolic expression of that phenomenon. So every time you go to a physician's office and you're sitting there and, and waiting for them to do whatever they're gonna be doing with you, that is implicit in the room. And it's an ancient mystical symbol of that very phenomenon. And there's variations on a the theme, but there it is. So it is very real. And again, it's just outside of our awareness. It's outside of our awareness, but uh, it, is, it is there. And that is the, the, the Indian, Dravidian Indian word for it is Kundalini. Uh, the Kemetic Egyptians refer to it as the Uraeus serpent. And again, there are other names for it. Every culture you go to has some name, some symbol for that phenomenon. And it is luminous. It is luminous. And it is the highest level of, the, of our mental states, and then it takes us beyond that, and way beyond that. As a great teacher of mine used to tell me periodically, say it to me periodically, all of the body is in the mind, but not all of the mind is in the body. Very interesting. Um, the tradition uh, that seems to... Um, one of the traditions, I should say, where yeah. these religious spiritual ideas yeah. still exist outside of Kundalini is in the Hermetic traditions. Yes. Because, you know, we even get the word alchemy from Kemetic Egypt yeah. and Al alchemy. Alchemic. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to mirror this process as well of yes. a transformation of consciousness. And yes. Um, you know, and the figure mostly associated with uh, the Hermetic traditions is, of course, you know, Hermes Trismegistus. Who, yeah. And but it's also really interesting that um, he's supposed to be a you know, there was a, he began as Thoth, the Egyptian god Thoth. Um, of course, you know, he's always presented as white. You know, that, that's again, you know, these biases. There seems to me to be a current interest in hermeticism and mm. alchemy and possibly even kundalini do you think that these things are reawakening in human consciousness right now i believe they're um, reawakening i sense that part of the, the stimulus for them reawakening is that we as a species and as a planet but certainly as a species are undergoing a radical change our environment is changing in front of us real fast I mean, real fast. There's no more, uh, maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, well, you know, I don't, no, 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 it's here. It's happening now. And historically, almost every time there has been a major climactic change on the earth, there's been a new form of us, the hominid line that emerges. So my intuition, this is just my intuition, 
is that we are responding to uh, earth changes that we don't have any control of anymore now. And that a fundamental forces that live within us, like the energy of Kundalini, uh, our capacity to adapt and everything is being challenged. And that is what is stimulating that. And changes like this tend to stimulate a deeper search for our origins and for our higher unions, you know? Um, so I think that that is part of what is, is going on. And none of us, including certainly not me, know how this is gonna turn out. We are in the middle of the story. And uh, where it goes from here, I don't know. But it's, it is, the changes in the earth are yeah. stimulating these changes. And we have to adapt. We either adapt or we perish. It's that, it's that simple. Yeah. There's no more getting around it. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned uh, that I already wanted to ask you about, you write that in the future, the, and this is a direct quote, uh, in the future, the peaceful resolution of our worldwide divisive ethnicity psychosis, and I think it is a psychosis, uh, will be the deeper recognition of our African rootedness. But along those lines, you mentioned something. Uh, I don't. Re I don't think that you actually used the word, but this is how I learned it. You used the the definition of uh, Ubuntu, uh, which comes from uh, Africa, which is "I am because we are." And it, in my mind, that is a necessary condition for the human species to adapt that kind of attitude. Yes. Uh, in facing these uh, this current environmental crisis, right? We have to we have to recognize that uh, there are limits to individuality. I mean, in the United States, we've developed um, a, a culture, a very uh, uh, brilliant, um, in many ways aggressive and expansive culture, uh, rooted in individuality. That has been our religion. Get ahead. Uh, my rights. Uh, it has all kinds of implications. And for the most part, it has been a very good thing. It's been a very good model. It has created a, 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 an economic system that, that rivals, has made the world envious in many ways. But we're, reach, we're reaching the limits of that now because I, just because uh, I feel a certain way doesn't give me the right to do something that impinges upon you. You know, I, I, so I take my garbage out and I just throw it over the back fence. I can't do that. That's, that's your land. It's public land. I can't pollute the waters like that because this is how I want to handle my sewage system. Uh, 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 this is how I'll get rid of my uh, pollution. I'm, no, we have a communal and we have to recognize the limits of individual uh, rights and on a deeper level than that, however, on a deeper level than that, which you're alluding to, is to recognize that I, I, the me, emerges out of our. When an infant is uh, initially born, it has no sense of individuality. It's just, you know, feed me. <laughs> That's it. As it begins to develop, it has a symbiotic relationship with the ones who are caring for it. And then eventually, out of that, that we-ness, that, that us-ness, that mm, emerges a sense of me, I. And it usually emerges uh, around, developmentally, around one and a half to two years old. If you have a, a younger brother or sister, or you have a child of your own, you recognize that around one and a half or two years old, the kid gets into no. No, time to go to bed, no. And change your diaper, no. Uh, he wants more dessert, no. Well, the kid is just not being negative and oppositional. What, they are, what they're doing is they're differentiating their sense of I from the larger us. They have to do that. They have to learn how to do that. That is the emergence of that I. But prior to I is we. Prior to I is we. And if there's no we, then the, then the, then the kids, well, won't get, won't get beyond that stage. 
or get beyond that stage. So it's a necessary uh, stage in, in the developmental stage in, in the, uh, childhood uh, psychology. And uh, we as a culture are certainly continuing to recognize individuality because it, uh, an assertion because it has brought enormous wealth to our society. Also have to recognize the implicit limits of that. You know, um, uh, it, here's a very concrete example of that today. And I know this is controversial, but I'm gonna say it anyway. We here in the United States are fighting with each other around vaccinations, this COVID vaccination. And there are logical arguments to both sides, okay. But oftentimes people say, it's my right not to take that, to be, to be vaccinated. And it turns out that is true. That is your right. It is your right, but it is not your right to be able to infect me. Yes, so absolutely. you don't want to, that's okay. Hey, you don't believe in it or you, you don't trust it or whatever. I get it. Get it and that's your right. But you don't get to get on the same airplane with me and breathe the same air and potentially contaminate me. No. And this yeah. is, so this is happening right now, right now, right now. So this yeah. is, these are not, these are not intellectual ideas off in the firmament somewhere. This is, this is, this is today at this very moment. And when you were talking about the uh, child saying no, that's actually what came up in my mind <laughs> was, uh, you know, a lot of our current uh, citizens, uh, our fellow Americans, you know, sometimes they seem a little bit um, like that defiant uh, child. Nope, not going to do it. Um, and it's a failure to recognize the interconnection um, between all of us. Um, we are. All we are interconnected with each other. We are. We are. We are. Uh, uh, woven on the same loom and what happens to you in some way affects me and what happens to you in some way affects everyone else. Mm. We have a, an experience of that in many different ways. Um, from a purely scientific point of view, purely scientific point of view, it is an operational position point now in um, the area of physics referred to as quantum mechanics, that uh, all points, all light, all points of matter are intimately interconnected with each other through quantum interconnectedness. And, and the other one is what's called non-locality. In other words, everything is intimately woven into everything else. There is no ultimate separation is an illusion. It's functional. But it's a separate illusion. Okay, that's in the area of science that we deem to be our highest form of knowledge in many areas. Okay. Certainly in village life, village life, you have to recognize the village and the community as having as much as importance as you as an individual. Because, you know, when you were born, you don't get born by yourself. Somebody has to bring you out of the womb. Uh, somebody has to teach you to speak. Somebody has to wipe your butt. Somebody has to feed you. Somebody has to teach you in school. The other is always there. And if you get sick, someone usually is going to take care of you, hopefully. So the other is always there. And then finally, so there's that interconnectedness. And then finally, at the point of death, the omega point, when we pass through this physical mesh and we are again in touch with our luminous undercurrents, which we find in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the um, Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, many mystical revelations that people write about and so on and so forth, in the including in the Christian tradition, we come up to a being of some enormous luminosity and intelligence. And we have a, what's called a life review. This is in the near-death studies. And uh, during that life review, we see how our life has been interconnected with everybody else we've ever known 
including some of the things that we've done with other people, how that's affected their life. So again, that quantum interconnectedness is not only for quantum mechanics, subatomic particles, et cetera, et cetera. It's also true about our very core, intimate consciousness. So that interconnectedness is prior. Individuality is very important, very interesting, but you know, we grow up in a family and we die in a family. And if it works out, in some permutation, the family continues, but our individual consciousness is gone, at least on this surface. But the family consciousness continues. So all around us is our interconnectedness. And now we've reached a point where if we continue to ignore it, we're ignoring it at our peril because the weather is changing, folks, fast. And all those people who are being swept away by rivers and floods and so forth, they're being helped by other people. And they always say they're so thankful that their neighbor or their friend or their whatever came out and the first responders helped them and so on and so forth. Those are other people. They're not acting out of individuality. They're acting out of the common good. We have to recognize that the common good is healing, not be antagonistic to it. It's healing. Yeah, I agree with that um, 100%. Again, you know, everything you say is bringing up a lot of things um, that I would like to speak with you about. I know our time here is uh, limited, but one of the, uh, I have a couple of things I want to hit uh, while we still have the time. in terms of this idea that you were just sort of speaking to of uh, like the, the greater spiritual reality, especially after death and the life review, the, you also present an image of reincarnation. Uh, and you've also talked about this as well in terms of Osiris and that sort of cycle. And you mentioned that there is an involution of spirit uh, sort of into the world, but then an evolution back to the source. And I was just curious if you think that human evolution and the cycle of reincarnation, if reincarnation plays into human evolution. Well, my intuition is that it does. My intuition is that um, we don't create these notions, these ideas. Like the winds, the waves, the tides, gravity, we discover spiritual principles. And reincarnation is one of them. Uh, Our ancient ancestors who were related to us, but not in our direct line, the Neanderthals, die guys died out about maybe 50, 100,000 years ago. He buried his dead in the elaborate rituals. Other homo sapiens did the same thing. We, who are the latest expression, also did it. That's because we discover spirituality. We don't make it. There are certain phenomena that are in the world. And we are a curious species and we uncover it. And uh, the notion of cycles within cycles, becoming more differentiated and hierarchically manifest and more luminous, That principle, that idea, we discover that not only in evolution itself, we discover it within ourselves. That is what happens with an embryo. Out of the blastula and the development in the embryonic stage, it becomes more elongated. And after a while, we have a fetus. And then the fetus becomes more complex. It continues to expand. And its capacity to interact with the environment and light, that is the mystery of evolution. And we find the same phenomena outside of the womb in the cosmos itself. Galaxies are born and die. (laughs) Suns come and go. Solar systems arise and pass away. So, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is where we are. Yeah, for sure. I don't know why we're here for sure. But this is what's going on here. Yeah. In our final moments, I wanted to also... Uh, kind of go back just for a moment, because I think that this is important for what you're doing uh, and your argument in terms of the um, uh, 
what was the terminology you just used? The uh, return of the repressed, I think. Mm. Um, this recognition. Threatened return of the repressed. Okay. This is, this is, that's how anxiety gets generated in neuroses. Yeah. In, in psychiatry, psychology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more uh, in terms of um, what we see happening now. You addressed contemporary America towards the end of the book, um, but I see it as with what I've been saying in terms of the study of religion that there's this blind eye towards the African origins of many things. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, it's not that we have to necessarily learn something new, but we have to remember something that was right. often forcibly, you know, said, Nope, 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 that can't be. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that your one of your arguments is that this is a necessary thing to remember these things in order for remember. us to heal. Right. In the age, in the age of, uh, uh traditions of, of Egypt and Greece and um, the Middle East to some extent, but certainly ancient uh, Kemetic Egypt and uh, uh, Greece, the root of wisdom was not about discovery. It was about remembering. Plato's definition of wisdom was remembering what you knew at one time. Uh, what we are trying to do is to remember the genius of our origins and to recognize that those genius, that those origins point to something very luminous. That we emerge out of that, we are essentially that, and that uh, this is um, this is where we're heading. We are, uh, as as Teilhard de Chardin said, uh, the, the great uh, um, Jesuit priest and paleontologist, that ultimately we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're much vaster than our most articulate and expansive ideas because that is, our, that is our nature. And the more that we can embrace that without fear, without recoil, you know, get over the threat that we're going to be dissolved in something. Because that, you know, for many people, uh, this, this, this notion of an African consciousness, an African unconscious is perceived irrationally, I believe, as a threat to the sense of identity, that the sense of identity will disappear. When that's simply fear thinking. It's not true. It's politically potent. I understand that. I get the dynamics. I'm tuned into the news. But it's an illusion. It's an illusion. I mean, that's like thinking, you know, if I go to sleep at night, I'll disappear no longer be. No, you go to sleep. And then you enter a different level of consciousness and you reemerge. But there's no threat to your consciousness and your existence because you go into the dark. The dark, by the way, is paradoxically full of light. That's the other thing. It's full of light. And once you really get it, once the insight sinks in, you spend a lot of time just laughing. <laughs> you realize... I have nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear here. There's nothing to fear. And so that is what we're trying to bring back, that, that consciousness, which is the birthright and inheritance of everyone. And it is a treasure that uh, everyone can access. You know, we can all be wealthy and nobody has to be poor. There's enough to go around. Yeah, that's a very uh, beautiful vision, and I hope that it manifests <laughs> into our world. Um, we have that, to, or else we're not yeah. going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And we also, we also have to get our act together. We, we, the, the, the commercial use of space has begun. Hmm. The first government-sponsored explorations of space are still going on, but they're now being superseded, not superseded, by joined by the commercial use of space. Remember when they were tinkering with automobiles back in the you know, early 1900s, late 1800s? And then uh, Ford got a car going and we started being commercial use of automobiles. Well, we're about to do that with space folks and we have no idea for sure what we're gonna encounter out there. So we better get our act together. 
We better get the home front act together. Really. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely necessary. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes. So I wanted to ask you, uh, your book is so rich and uh, we certainly couldn't cover everything in an hour. Is there anything that we didn't speak about in regards to your book that you would like to let the listeners uh, know about? Um, is there anything that you feel is crucial uh, in your work that hasn't been touched upon? Uh, I think you've done a very good job at touching on, 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 on most of the points. I would just uh, emphasize this last one, that spirituality in various, various forms from vague I'm not so sure, but I'm not religious, but I'm, I'm spiritual. People say that. Uh, to people who have a very clear, orthodox path of whatever kind that they follow. That impulse, that impulse is biogenetically rooted in all of us. It has a biological substrate, although it's not reducible to that. There's a biological substrate. It is something that we inherit. And is that something that we develop? And Kundalini is one of the best ways of doing that because it's very direct, it can be measured, and it is a path that can be seen uh, by people in their uh, practices of one kind or another, and so they can verify it. And we live in an age, and I'm glad of that, in which scientific and methodological verification of things is extremely important. And I believe those of us who, in addition to having a scientific and a clinical orientation, are also open to a deep spiritual current in our lives, uh, can recognize that, such that our spirituality and religion are no longer on the fringes and vaguely embarrassed that they have a right to be at the party. No, you're the central focus. You're the central focus. And we begin to use science and the clinical sciences in particular to substantiate that. So that is what I want to emphasize. Again, every time you go to a physician's office and you see the medical producers, you are paying homage to that ancient tradition, that ancient tradition. And that ancient tradition is rooted in your very body. Very good, very good. So um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, I have a... Uh, yeah, oh, I have a website that folks can tune into, uh, or they can go to, uh, they can just check it out at, uh, at any of, uh, Amazon. Amazon's very good at that. Um, um, but the website also has a number of articles that are easily understood, they're not full of jargon, and it's at www.obeliskfoundation.com. In other words, the word obelisk, like an Egyptian obelisk, and the word foundation, www.obeliskfoundation.com. It'll pop up and then you can play around it. And you can, there are interesting articles. Some of them are straightforward clinical articles that I, as a psychologist, have written about, you know, hypnosis and, 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 and depression and uh, um, family therapy and those kind of clinical areas, but also areas of, that we've been talking about and how they come together and the scientific basis for that. And, uh, and then take what you need, take what you need. And there are a number of books in there that you can run off in different places, you know, uh, uh, but the website will give you that information and then uh, do it what you will. Okay. Wonderful. I will put a link to the website and also uh, links to uh, our African unconscious in the show notes and on YouTube in the video description. Well, I thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, I could speak to you, I think for hours on, on some well, of I, this. I could um, obviously run on it too, yeah. but you know, we, we want to pay respect for the, for the listener who's set aside a certain amount of time for this. And I'm very sure. grateful that you spent some time uh, uh, paying attention to this as a, as a listener. Yeah. Yes. Uh, me too. And again, I just want to stress uh, one final time how important I think uh, the book is uh, and the insights that you bring. Um, I, I, I think it can help help us heal in many ways. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak to so many people.
Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Bynum. And that's a wrap on episode 12 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or for my YouTube audience. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed whenever I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. If you would like to support my work in creating free and credible material on YouTube, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, May you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.